Well, good morning. I uh, just want to say, um, may the Lord be with you, Erickson's. I remember when I got the same news, and that was very hard. And um, I just pray that his grace and his strength will carry you through this time and his peace. And um, we'll keep praying with you and um, be there for you. <clears throat> August 9th, 1945. The second of only two atomic bombs was dropped on Nagasaki, Japan, by an all-American Christian crew, <clears throat> only doing their jobs as American Christians. Three days earlier, the first bomb had been dropped on Hiroshima by the B-29 Super Fortress. It had taken off from the, uh, this was the day on August 9th, had taken off from Tinian Islands, um, prayers and blessings of the Lutheran and Catholic chaplains were given. Three weeks earlier, they had tested a bomb, the atomic bomb, before Hiroshima. Uh, it was known as the Trinity of all things. On this day, August 9th, the bomber was headed for Kokura, but that that just happened to be that there was clouds and it had clouded up the city to where the bombers couldn't see. So they headed for their second target, Nagasaki. Nagasaki had the largest population of Christians in Asia. They had the lar largest cathedral, although Catholic, but the largest cathedral in Asia. <clears throat> in that town alone, there were estimated anywhere from 15 or... Yeah, estimated 15,000 Christians, of which those 15,000 Christians, 10,000 died. They estimate anywhere from 40 to uh, 80,000 people in Nagasaki alone died that day. And think about 10,000 of those being Christians, bombed by a supposed Christian nation with Christian pilots and Christian priests who prayed over those pilots. Interestingly, only 150 soldiers were killed that day in Nagasaki out of the 40 to 80,000 men, women, and children who were killed. <clears throat> I don't know if I'll have time today to read it, but this here is a article called Blessings, the Bombs. It is the priest who actually blessed both crews that went out that day. And after, it says here, after a week later, they flew over. Uh, they flew over as a reconnaissance mission to see what happened after they dropped those bombs. And it said, the man described how thousands of scorched, twisted bodies writhed on the ground in the final throes of death, while those still on their feet wandered aimlessly in shock, flesh seared, melted, and falling off. This was the pilot who flew over a week later. The cruiseman's description raised a stifled cry from the depths of this priest's heart who had just blessed. And amazingly enough, after that happened, this priest changes theology. And I'd love if we have time in this series, as Brother Glenn said, I don't know how I'm ever going to get through it in one day. 
to read his his uh, on the 40th anniversary he gave a speech um, about this. <clears throat> How could we have reached a situation where a Catholic priest blessed the men that dropped a bomb on two cities between Hiroshima and Nagasaki? They estimate anywhere from 130 to 210 thousand people died from a bomb how could we justify that men women and children by a christian nation a christian pilot on a town that had the biggest population of christianity in japan we look at christian history and we see many horrors committed we see the crusades we see the inquisitions where the catholic church justified using force and violence to as they would misinterpret Jesus' teachings, compel them to come in. As Jesus taught in his parable, they decided that that meant they could use force to bring people back into the church. The Albigensians, which were massacred, the Spanish Armadas, the Anabaptists, the German Christians fighting against American Christians in the world wars, the treatment of Indians and blacks, we have a long history of unspeakable atrocities. And sometimes we forget <clears throat> how our culture and how we were raised can influence our thinking. Here is a belt buckle that was on a German soldier in the war with the Nazis. You can see the Nazi swastika. And over the top it says, Gott mit uns. That means God with us. Can you imagine Christian Germans fighting against Christian Americans wearing belts saying God with us? <clears throat> Here's a picture of a Russian Orthodox priest christening a tank. And I don't know what battle they were going to go fight, but he's got his holy water. Here's a picture from one of the world wars. I think this was in Poland. You see uh, a priest, and he is also christening all of these weapons, all of these soldiers. In the name of Christ. This one's appalling. Um, an intercontinental ballistic missile, a nuclear missile. And he is christening it in Russia. A nuclear missile that could devastate millions of people. In another country. <clears throat> Here's another one of a priest christening a jet fighter plane. And you may say, well, that's Russia and that's Poland and that's that's them. Well, how many of you, I grew up seeing this image. How many of you have ever seen this image before? Anybody seen this image? Maybe it's just me. <laughs> this is George Washington. Now... The story is not for sure, but basically what it's depicting is George Washington at one of his famous battles, and he's stopping to pray to God for victory, for success. And to me, growing up, seeing images like this brought nationalism, brought pride, brought um, the feeling inside that I should do something for my country. How, who's got a wallet here? And who's got cash in their wallet? Can you, one of you pull it out and just let me borrow it for a minute? 
<laughs> Lest you think that we're so strange, we do the same thing. In God we trust. You know, thank you. I won't keep it. <laughs> In fact, I came across this picture, and I thought, wow, what does this say about nationalism? This is a picture with Trump. It's a painting with Trump on the front. And if you'll notice, right here is Reagan. He's got his hand over here laying it on there, praying for him. George Washington has his hand through uh, John F. Kennedy, um, probably Samuel Adams in there. I think, what military leader did you see in there? Robert E. Lee. uh, Abraham Lincoln. You know, what is this depicting? This is depicting national Christian pride, really. And here Trump is at the bottom, a man that is terribly immoral. I think he's living in his third marriage. Uh, uses curse words against people. Uses the most atro- atrocious words against other nations. And yet, we continue to go down this path of setting those things aside and lifting up our national pride. <clears throat> now, about a month ago, as Brother Glenn said, he asked me, would you speak on the subject of separation of church and state. The idea, thank you, whoever bought this. <laughs> the idea that, we'll, we'll draw a cross here for the church, and we'll draw, if I can do this, a shield for the state. And the idea, uh, one of the founders of Rhode Island um, his name was Rogers, Roger Williams, sorry, Roger Williams. He had an envisionment, an idea that there should be a wall of separation. He called it between the wilderness of the world and the garden of the church. And he tried to form his colony that way. And then later, as James Madison probably read his writings and the Bill of Rights was being put together they came out with some terminology, even though it's not in our Constitution, it's not in the Bill of Rights, um, but it's an idea of a wall of separation, and we've all heard it, separation of church and state. Now, when Glenn first asked me, would you preach on it, I couldn't help but think of it from my background. Now, from an Anabaptist, I asked two Anabaptists, what does that mean to you? And they immediately told me what it meant to them, and I, assumed, I, I figured if that's how I thought they would think. But from my background, it meant a totally different thing. The First Amendment says this, it separates, uh, it's, Congress shall make no law, Congress shall make no law respecting any establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. And it goes on to talk about free speech, the right of the people to assemble. But the, the point there is that they will not make a law that will respect or uh, like we've seen before the United States of America, we saw this country was German. This company, country was Catholic. So what the founders of this country had the idea is we don't want our government to decide this is our religious um, government, uh, our, our religion for our government. And they also shall not prohibit the free exercise thereof. But the idea is that this wall separates the government from establishing or constricting the church, but it doesn't, it's a one-way wall. 
It keeps the, the government out of the church, but not the church out of the government. So when I was raised and the things that I heard, and I heard separation of church and state, I said, that's right. They shall not make any rules against us. But I never thought it was an issue for me to be a part of the government, for me to be even serve in the military, for me to make uh, take on a government position and even make Christian laws. Now, for Anabaptists, Mennonites, most some of you have been raised that way. When you think of separation of church and state, at least you probably think, at least the two Mennonites I asked, they thought of this as this side. Well, we can't get involved in the government. And I think that's what Glenn was meaning. <clears throat> Growing up, I, you know, as I analyze this, when you sit in these churches that teach this way, that it's all right to be part of our government, it's all right to go to war. It's not a, um, it's not something that like we will spend a lot of time talking about non-resistance. But in those kind of churches, there's no, it's not like people are talking about this all the time and defending it and why we can go to war. You just are born into it. People talk that way. People, all the friends you know who are Christians, they're involved, you know, with self-defense and, you know, they would have no problem with Christians being in the government and going to war. It's just something that's accepted and very little preached on, at least in my circles, and talked about. So I don't remember until I was maybe 30. I don't remember having this conversation. I didn't even know Mennonites existed. I didn't even know the Anabaptists existed and believed in non-resistance. And I didn't even know what the early church believed on the subject. As far as I knew, this was Christianity. And so you didn't hear much in defense. But I do remember as I started reading the Gospels for the first time and and really asking, what is Christianity really? I remember reading Jesus teachings and thinking, are we supposed to take this literally? And I went to some of those who were in leadership over me, my pastors, and I asked. And and then that's when the teachings from the seminaries, the teachings from the Bible colleges came out. And there are many ways, many ways we can get around these teachings. Um, I know you all know, but I came from a, a, a group of Christians who actually believed those teachings weren't even for Christians. All the teachings in the Sermon on the Mount are for another dispensation. That's a pretty um, limited group of people that believe that way. But there are many ways, as I have learned, for us to get around. But I do remember this little quote being quoted a lot. And it goes like this. The only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. What that means is if all it takes for evil to continually prevail is for good men to do nothing. Of course, when this was spoken to me, it was as if prayers are nothing. It was as if holiness was nothing. It was as if the only thing we have the option to do is to use force and to stop it is to get involved and make laws. Luther often said, we cannot leave the world to the serpent. Once again, meaning the same thing. Bonhoeffer said, silence in the face of evil is evil. Once again, we would agree. Yeah, we should say something. We should stand up. 
but should we use force? And that's the question. So I want to take, and I don't know how long this will take, but I want to address three things. The separation of church and state. Number one, what did Jesus teach? Here, we'll just type right. What did Jesus teach and his apostles? I want to look at history. And so what did history teach? Uh, what can we learn from history? And finally, I want to look at interpretations. How do we interpret Jesus' teachings? You know, I remember, and I've been in many, you've probably been in many churches, they say, we use the Bible, right? We, we uh, sola scripture. We only use the Bible here, brother. What does the Bible have to say on the subject? Well, the problem is you can go to that church down there and they will say one thing and you can go down to this church over here and they will say another and you can go to this church and they will say a third thing. They're all using the same Bible. The difference is they all interpret it differently. And so we need to discuss that. We need to discuss the different interpretations and how people arrive at these different understandings. They all read the same thing, but there are different interpretations. So let's start off with what did Jesus teach? So get your Bibles out. <clears throat> and the first thing I want to look at is the question of just the very question of can we be involved in government? And that's going to have to break into several tiers. But the first thing I want to look at is in Matthew chapter. Um, actually, let's go to Mark. It's, it's spoken of in Matthew 20 and Mark 10. So let's just look at it in Mark chapter 10. <clears throat> verse 35. And James and John, the son of Zebedee, came unto him, saying, Master, we would that thou shouldest do for us what we would shall desire. And he said to them, What would you that I should do for you? And they said to him, Grant unto us that we may sit one on the right side and the other on the left in thy glory. But Jesus said unto him, you, not know, you do not know what you're asking. Can you drink of the cup that I drink of and be baptized with the baptism that I'm baptized with? And they said, we can. Pretty confident. And Jesus said unto them, you shall indeed drink of the cup that I drink of and with the baptism that I am baptized with all shall you be baptized. But to sit on my right hand and on my left hand is not mine to give but it shall be given to them for whom it is prepared. And when the 10, so the other 10 apostles, uh, disciples, then began to be much displeased with James and John, and Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that they which are accounted to rule over the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and their great ones exercise authority upon them. But so shall it not be among you, but whoever will be great among you shall be your, I'm just going to use the word servant. That's what minister means here. And whoever of you will be the chiefest shall be servant of all. For even as the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. So we see here Jesus saying, that the Gentiles are the ones that lord it over. The Gentiles are the ones that exercise authority, get into positions of power. But he said, it shall not be so among you. Another passage, he says, for you are all brethren. So here he says that 
we need to consider ourselves on the same level. And I don't know how we would do that if we were in government. <clears throat> I will quickly just mention, although we are saying, what did Jesus teach and his apostles? Paul said the, a passage, be not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. To enter government, we have to enter into a yoke. To enter an office, we have to be partaking in one common goal with unbelievers. We have to be yoked with them to defend the Constitution. What did Jesus do? Um, John chapter 6. So he taught his disciples not to lord it over. What did Jesus do? John chapter 6, verse 15. When Jesus therefore perceived that they would come and take him by force to make him a king, he departed again into a mountain, himself alone. When Jesus knew they wanted to make him a king, he didn't allow it. He got away. Now, I can tell you how I would have interpreted this verse. I would have thought of it as, yeah, but Jesus had a purpose. He knew what he was doing. So he he knew he had to die. So he couldn't be a king. And that may well be. That's an interpretation of what this means. But what we need to be very careful as we go through this study is, A, what are we going to be held accountable for one day? And B, what was Jesus' example to us? In 1 John, it says, everyone who claims to be a Christian must walk like Jesus did. So we very we need to be very careful and very studious to study the life of Christ and not just go out and do things that he may not be pleased with us. Or else, as Jesus said, why do you call me master or Lord and do not do the things I say? Okay, so let's look at Matthew chapter 5. I want to discuss the oath. What did Jesus say about the oath? It's very common in any government you enter to have to take an oath. In fact, um, the civilian oath, if you just joined any office of government, you would have to take the civilian oath, as far as I understand. And you would say, I, Caleb, do solemnly swear that I will support and defend, not just support, but defend, the Constitution of the United States and against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance. Do you know what allegiance means? That means faithfulness, obedience <clears throat> to the same. If you were to join the military, you would have to take the enlistment officer oath. You would say, I, George, do solemnly swear that I support and will support and defend the Constitution of the United States against all enemies, foreign and domestic, I will bear true faith and allegiance to the same and that I will obey the orders of the president of the United States and the orders of the officers appointed over me according to the regulations and the uniform military code of justice. So help me God. Interesting that that's in there. The uniform code of military justice says you must obey if it's a lawful order. And if the president of the United States said, George, shoot that civilian right here. It's still very gray if that would be a lawful order or not, because he could say he's a traitor and that's all he'd have to say. And and George would need to shoot it or he would be insubordinate. He would be 
in defiance against the oath that he took. If you become a citizen of the United States, so let's just imagine you lived in Brazil and you wanted to join the United States. You would have to say this. I hereby declare an oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce all allegiance and fidelity to any foreign prince, potentate, state. We just sang a song about Jesus being a potentate, by the way. <laughs> and you're saying here you have to renounce any potentate uh, or sovereignty of whom or which I have heretofore been subject or citizen. Now, listen to this, that I will support and defend the Constitution, the laws of the United States of America against all enemies, foreign and domestic, that I will bear true faith and allegiance the same, and I will bear arms on behalf of the United States when required by law. You know that if you were in another country as an Anabaptist trying to join the United States of America, I don't know how you could become one. Because you would have to say, I swear, I will bear arms for this country. <clears throat> now, let me ask you this before. Well, we should just read what Jesus said. I'm already way down my notes and we need to read Matthew chapter five, verse 33. <clears throat> this is a new teaching for you. I would beg you to to give me grace and try to approach this from an open mind um, and try to listen to the rest of them because the rest of the teachings, because. Um, I'm not going to be able to finish today. <clears throat> Matthew chapter five, verse 33. Again, you have heard that it has been said by them of old time, thou shalt not forswear thyself, but shall perform in the Lord thy oath. Verse 34. But I say to you, I'm just going to change a little bit so you understand. Do not swear at all. Neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, for by, nor by the earth, for it is the footstool. Neither by Jerusalem, for it is a city of the great king. Neither shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your communication be yes, yes, or no, no, for whatever it is more than these comes from evil. Anything more than that, Jesus said, comes from evil. James was an apostle of Jesus. Let's quickly turn there. James chapter 5. And it says uh, in verse 12, but above all things, my brothers, isn't that interesting? James says above everything, after he's been going through all these different things about hypocrisy and about humbling yourself and pride. And he says, above all this, brother, of all things, brother, swear not. Don't take an oath, neither by heaven nor by earth, neither by any other oath. Did you get that? It didn't just say don't swear by heaven or earth. It says any oath. By all, uh, but let your communication be yay, yay, lest you fall into condemnation. Okay, so we have two clear teachings from Jesus that says we shouldn't swear an oath. Yet, this country would have you swear an oath to enter into the office of it. As a, a military officer, as a senator. So let me ask you this. If you if if Dennis was my servant, you know, he worked for me and he was a real servant, like he didn't get paid. I told him every day, you know, where he's going to be. He had to report to me. And I found out, you know, he's my servant. I bought him with a good amount of money. And and I find out he made some allegiance to some other master and told him, hey, I'll be there whenever you call me and whenever you summon for me, I'll do whatever you say. What would that do for me? It wouldn't work. I'd, I'd be pretty upset with Dennis. Like, how can you call me Lord? And yet you swore 
complete allegiance over to this person. That's the problem here with swearing an oath. You are promising. You are promising to obey what the government tells you to do. That's why we can't even say I believe we can't even say pledge of allegiance because pledge means a solemn promise. Allegiance means loyalty, faithfulness, devotion, obedience. How can I solemnly promise my country that I will obey them and be faithful to them and be loyal to them when they tell me something I can't do? They tell me I have to kill that civilian, shoot that child in the head. I can't do that. But somehow we bring a bomber plane down and pull off the, the um, machine gun and we don't see it. You know, it's just it's just a bunch of bullets and dust. And we shoot that guy in the head and we're all right with that. Isn't that strange? The priest could never sanction when that soldier came to him and he said, can I shoot a child in the head? He said, no, no I can't. You can't do that. But when the soldier comes down with the with the um, airplane and shoots, now it's somehow legit. And that's how he realized in his own head he was brainwashed, that we have come to the idea that we can shoot or drop a bomb on civilians. And that's OK, but we could never shoot them when they're standing right in front of us. <clears throat> now, we'll leave that for later. But in the time of Rome, in the time of uh, the early church. Caesar got really smart. He said this. All you need to do is say Caesar is I think it's Kairos in Greek, which means Lord. Well, the Christians couldn't do that because to say that meant Caesar's my master. I'm pledging allegiance to him. I'm making my oath that I will follow him. They could not do that. They would be killed. And this is how Caesar weeded out insubordinate people in his country. The Christians could only say Jesus is Lord. It brings a whole new realization of when we say Jesus is Lord, how political it was for them. That's why in Acts, when it was being studying, it said, they have another king, King Jesus. That was their accusation. See, these Romans, it wasn't so much about Christianity and they're just this weird sect and we should just kill them. It was because they were worried that they were going to come against Rome. And so the way they weeded them out was just a simple little thing. Just say Caesar is Lord and we'll test whether you're really faithful to me or not. And then the same thing today. Can we be faithful to this country by taking an oath? <clears throat> Let's look at loving our enemies. Another thing you're going to have to do, we just read, we will take an oath to defend the Constitution and even bear up arms. What did Jesus teach on that? Matthew chapter 5. Also Luke chapter 6. <clears throat> yeah. He said... Luke, Matthew chapter 5 and verse 44, he said this. Love your enemies. Bless them that curse you. Do good to them that hate you and pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you. Now, if we compare that to 1 Corinthians 13, which Paul gives us the meaning of the same Greek word for love. It says, love is patient, right? Love is kind. Let's just replace that. Be patient with your enemies. Be kind with your enemies. Love suffers long. Be suffer long with your enemies. It's not easily provoked. 
Love isn't easily provoked with its enemies. Beareth all things. This is the definition of love. Beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, endureth all things. Why did Jesus say we're to love our enemies? Bear with our enemies in all things? Endure with our enemy things in all things? <clears throat> now let me ask you this. What did Jesus do? How did he live his life with his enemies? Once again, our, our theological mind, our scholarship wants to say, well, that was because he had to die on the cross. But what did he do? What was his example? When they came to arrest him and kill him, and one of his followers cut off the soldier's ear, what was Jesus' response to that? He healed the soldier's ear. Not only that, but he rebuked his follower and told him, put your sword away. Suffer ye this, he said. Suffer. I mean, that's the idea of long suffering is, is the idea of take it, bear it. He said, for all who live by the sword shall die by the sword. He commanded his own follower, rebuked him, and he turned around and showed love and healed his enemy. When they tortured him on the cross, I mean, think about this. They didn't just shoot him with the gun and he was done. They put him up there and let him go through agony and pain and misery. How would you like to be on a cross for hours and hours and hours being tortured? And somehow he found within his, the depth of his heart to say, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. He had a heart of mercy and compassion. <clears throat> and in fact, Later in one of the epistles, it says, when you were enemies, you were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Jesus died for every one of you while you were still enemies. And yet we're called to the same example. Peter says that Jesus left us an example. When he was threatened, he didn't threaten. When he was reviled, he didn't revile. That means when he was cursed at, he didn't curse back. But listen to David. Many times when you are talking about war and self-defense, they say, well, David was a man after God's own heart and he, he killed his enemies. David said this, I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them mine enemies. David said, let all my enemies be ashamed and sore vexed. David said, God shall let me see my desire upon mine enemies. Consume them in wrath. Consume them that they may not be and let them know that God ruleth in Jacob unto the ends of the earth. Let them wander up and down for meat and grudge if they are not satisfied. Do you hear that different spirit? Do you hear the spirit of the Old Testament, which was consume them, destroy my enemies and Jesus forgive them? A spirit of mercy? Does anybody remember um, when the apostles or the disciples came across those people and they said, should we call down fire from heaven? Who do they say it was like? Who should we do this like? Anybody remember? And what did Jesus say? Elijah, the man of God, the prophet of God who called down fire from heaven which he did correctly and all of that in that covenant. Now the apostles are saying, should we do the same thing? Should we just destroy our enemies? And what did Jesus say? He said, you don't know what spirit you are of for the son of man didn't come to destroy men's lives, but to save them. 
So these are examples of our master, the one we call Lord. I'm going to tell you a quick story and then I'll be done for now and we'll just continue on. But my dad called me yesterday and um, he had he had gotten I had bought him uh, one of those air tags, you know, that you can track things. And um, he put it in his wallet and uh, and his keys and he lost his keys a couple of weeks ago. And he, oh, son, I found my keys. It was so great. Show me right where it was. So then he called me yesterday and he said, um, I, he said, I've got to tell you this story. I lost my wallet and I couldn't find it, so I looked it up on my phone and sure enough, it was back at Wilco. So I went back to Wilco, right at the spot where it was, and it wasn't there. And then it just disappeared and it was in somebody else's house. So I went to their house and I knocked on the door and uh, asked, do you have my wallet? And, no, no, we don't have your wallet. So I went back and I called the police. And the police came and they questioned her, no, we don't have his wallet. So then I went back to Wilco and I said, could you pull up the, the videotapes and show me? And so they pulled them up. Sure enough, my dad drops the wallet. And this woman comes by right after him and picks it up. And so he uh, goes back to the place. And sure enough, he can ping three floors up. There's the wallet right up there. And um, so he calls the police and the police come back and knock on the door again. And the lady says, no, we don't have we don't have your wallet. And so the police go over to Wilco, look at the tape. Sure enough, it's the lady. Go back to to the lady's house and knock on the door. Ma'am, we have proof that you're the one that stole the wallet. And uh, and before he had come here, he asked my dad, do you want to press charges? And my dad said, if she's remorseful, I don't want to press charges. And so he um, said, he said to her, um, ma'am, we have proof that you stole the wallet and the person's not going to press charges if you're honest. And oh, all of a sudden she had the wallet. She, well, she had the money. She had the money, actually. She pulled out the money. Here's the money, and but not the wallet. So he came back to my dad, and my dad said, I still show what's up there, the, the wallet with the air tag. He wanted his air tag back. And so um, he went back up. The police officer went up and said, ma'am, he has one year that he can press charges. Do you want to try to find that wallet? And um, she found the wallet. <laughs> but then my dad said, I almost went back to her. And gave her some money because she told the officer, when I found the wallet, I went to my car and I, I, I didn't have enough money. I've been having all these medical bills and I've been just thinking about how, how nice it was to have the money to pay the medical bills. And my dad said, I almost went back and gave her some money for the medical bills. And you know what? My dad is not non-resistant. But in my heart, I was condemned. I was rebuked because I was like, justice, you know. And, <laughs> and then he said that. So, and yeah, that was yesterday as I was preparing the sermon. But, um, <laughs> but I'm saying, you know, um, loving our enemies and non-resistance, we can have it all down in doctrine, real great. But do we have it in spirit like that? I mean, he could, I don't know what, how the Lord's going to judge all that on that day. But that was a true instance of loving his enemy. I told him, I'm proud of you. Go back and give her the money, I think. I said, you might win a follower of the Lord for doing that. Um, but <clears throat> I'd like to get in, uh, in to a little bit more on what Jesus taught about. Um, I think we're just about done here with non-resistance. And then I'd like to go into church history. That ought to be very interesting. I want to look at what happened between the year of 300 and 400 with Constantine. What changed and some amazing things changed during that time in the church. 
I want to read some quotes from the early church, what they believed. I want to then look at what happened with Constantine and then Augustine and then further down the line, what happened with Luther and Zwingli. And then finally, I want to talk about interpretations. Where do we get all of this in the end? How do we interpret that we can love our enemies while killing them? And I honestly don't think people are sitting there, you know, knowing that, you know, they're doing wrong. It's just in their minds, this is what's been taught them. And, and, and like I was, I never knew any different. This is just what all Christians do. So um, with that, I'll close and turn it back over to Glenn and hope to finish up later.